0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and I have a very interesting personal account to share with you today. This one is written by one of the survivors of the Battle of Beecher's Island, who was a young Jewish boy who had signed up as a scout for the U.S. Cavalry, gone into the battle as yet untested, and, according to numerous accounts, fought as heroically as the most experienced of the men there, drawing heaps of praise from his commanders afterwards. First, here's a synopsis of what happened to Beecher's Island. It was September seventeenth, 1868, when a large party of Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Lakota warriors attacked a group of 50 U.S. Army volunteer scouts under the command of Major George A. Forsyth and Lieutenant Frederick H. Beecher on the Arikaree River about 18 miles southeast of Ray, Colorado. The Army scouts were in search of a band of natives who were believed to be responsible for raiding a freight train in Kansas. When attacked, the scouts moved to a sandbar in the middle of the Erickery River and concealed themselves behind the bodies of their horses. Major Forsyth dispatched scouts to try and get past the Indians and walked the 75 miles to Fort Wallace, Kansas for reinforcements. Buffalo Soldiers Companies H and I, under the command of Colonel Henry Bankhead Carpenter, were alerted by the scouts, who made it to Fort Wallace. Carpenter's troops arrived eight days later on September 25th. Major Forsyth named the sandbar Beecher's Island after Lieutenant Beecher, who died in the battle. Three other Army scouts died in that battle, and two others died soon after from wounds sustained in that battle. Another twenty scouts were wounded, including one who took an arrow in the forehead and later a bullet, which dislodged the arrowhead, yet he kept on fighting for three days. The Cheyenne chief, Roman Nose, along with an estimated one hundred warriors, also died in that battle. We'll bring you this personal account right after these sponsor messages. And now, from Indian Fights and Fighters: The Soldier and the Sioux, by Cyrus Townsend Brady. A note from the author. By great good fortune, I am permitted to insert here a private letter to me from Mr. Sigmund Schlesinger, the Jewish boy referred to in Chapter 6, which, as it contains an original account of the defense of Beecher's Island from the standpoint of one of the participants, is a unique document in our Western historical records. For several days, we had been following an Indian trail so broad that it looked like a wagon road. Those in our command experienced in Indian warfare told us that we must be on the track of an Indian village on the move, with a large herd of horses. Evidently they knew that we were behind them, and seemed to be in a hurry to get away, but we found camp utensils, tent poles, etc., which had been dropped and no time taken to pick them up. Among other things we saw fresh antelope meat, quarters, etc., and although our rations were nearly, if not all, gone, except some coffee and very little sow-belly, we did not dare eat the Indians' remnants. The night of September 16th, Before the attack next morning, Scout Culver, who was killed next day, pointed out to a few of us some torchlights upon the hills that were being swung like signals. I knew that something would be doing soon, but, like a novice, I was as if on an anxious seat, under a strain of anticipation, expecting something strange and dangerous. The next thing that I now recall was that I was awakened just before daylight by a single cry, Indians! So loud and menacing that when I jumped up from the ground... I was bewildered, and felt as if I wanted to ward off a blow, coming from what I knew not where, for it was still quite dark. That cry I will never forget. Soon I perceived a commotion among our horses and mules. The Indians, about a dozen of them, tried to stampede them. I could see in the dawning light the outlines of a white horse in the distance, and from the noise I realized that they were driving some of our stock before them. Later, in the daylight, "'we could recognize some of our ponies on a neighboring hill in the possession of the Indians. "'As soon as we crossed from the north bank of the river to the island, "'just before the attack, we tied our horses and pack-mules to shrubs as best we could. "'During the day, a mule with a partial pack on his back got loose "'and wandered around the vicinity of my pit. "'He had several arrows sticking in his body and seemed wounded otherwise, "'which caused him to rear and pitch to such an extent "'that Jim Lane, my neighbor, and I, decided to kill him. "'After shooting him, he fell and lay between us, "'and served us the double purpose of food and barricade. "'My horse was securely tethered to the underbrush on the island, "'and later that day I saw the poor beast rearing and plunging in a death struggle, "'having been shot and killed like the rest of our horses and mules. "'He also furnished me with several meals during the siege, "'even after he began to putrefy.' There was little to choose between horse and mule-meat under such circumstances. Both were abominable. When day broke that Tuesday, the 17th of September, 1868, we saw our pickets riding toward camp as fast as their horses could carry them, excitedly yelling, Indians! Indians! As I looked up the valley toward the west, I beheld the grandest, wildest sight, such as few mortals are permitted to see and live to tell about. "'Many hundreds of Indians in full-war paraphernalia, "'riding their splendid war ponies, "'rushed toward us en masse. "'Some were galloping in one direction, "'others cantering in another, "'their lances topped with many-colored streamers. "'The fantastic Indian costumes "'lending an awful charm to the whole thing. "'About this time, those amongst who had any "'had boiled some coffee "'and were preparing to cross over to the island. "'I will frankly admit that I was awed and scared.' I felt as if I wanted to run somewhere, but every avenue of escape was blocked. Look where I might, I perceived nothing but danger, which increased my agitation. So I naturally turned to Colonel Forsyth as a protector, as a young chick espying the hawk in the air flutters toward the mother wing. Under such conditions of strain, some things engrave themselves vividly upon your mind, while others are entirely forgotten. I remember that distinctly, as in my trepidation, I instinctively kept close to the colonel. I was reassured by his remarkable self-position and coolness. While stirring everyone to activity round us, he consulted with Lieutenant Beecher and the guide, Sharp Grover, giving directions here, advice there, until most of the command had crossed. Then he crossed himself and posted the men, telling them where to take up their different positions. Meantime, the Indians were coming closer. I was just behind the colonel when the first shot from the enemy came flying seemingly over our heads. "'I heard him say, smilingly, "'Thank you,' but immediately afterward "'he ordered every one of us to lie flat upon the ground "'while he, still directing, "'kept on his feet, walking around "'among us, leading his horse. "'The shots began coming thicker, "'and many of us yelled to him to lie down also. "'How long after this "'I do not know, but I heard the colonel "'cry out that he was shot, "'and I saw him clutch his leg and get down "'in a sitting position. "'I was lying alongside of Lou McLaughlin,' Some tall weeds obscured my vision so I asked Lou to crouch lower and I rolled over him to the other side and was there kept busy with my carving for the Indians were now on to us. They were circling around while others were shooting. Very soon I heard Lou growl and mutter. I looked at him and saw that he was hit. A bullet come from the direction where I was lying struck his gun sight and glanced into his breast. He told me what had happened but I could give him no attention for there seemed lots of work to do before us. "'But later, after the repulse of the attack, "'I looked at Lou and was surprised to see him lying in a wallow. "'In his pain he had torn up the grass and dug his hands into the sand. "'In answer to my question whether he was hurt bad, "'he told me, not bad, "'and advised me to dig into the sand and make a hole, "'as it would be a protection. "'I was not sure at this time, "'but I am now under the impression that I told Colonel Forsythe of this, "'and from that time on we began to dig with our hands or whatever we could use.' "'and kick with our heels and toes in the sand, "'and some of us soon had holes dug deep enough "'to protect the chest, at least. "'Time seemed out of our calculations. "'I heard someone call, "'What time is it?' "'An answer came, three o'clock. "'I had thought it was about ten a.m. "'We had nothing to eat or drink all day, "'and strange to say, "'I was not hungry, "'which may have been the reason "'why I thought it was still early. "'Word was passed that Lieutenant Beecher "'and Scouts Wilson and Culver were killed.' "'Colonel Forsythe wounded again. "'Also Dr. Moores shot in the head, "'and others hurt whose names I do not now remember. "'We fought steadily all day. "'After dark, the Indians withdrew. "'Then nature began to assert itself. "'I got hungry. "'There was nothing to eat in the camp that I knew of, "'except some wild plums that I had gathered the day before, "'which were in my saddlebags, "'still on the body of my horse. "'I got out of my hole, "'creeping on hands and knees "'toward where I knew the poor animal lay.' As I felt my way in the darkness, I touched something cold, and upon examination found that it was Wilson's dead hand. He lay where he fell. It was a most horrible feeling. The shivers ran up and down my back, but I got to my horse at last, and tugging, I finally secured the bag and my plums. I also found in it a piece of bacon, the size of two fingers, which I reserved for a last emergency, and was still in possession of that rusty piece of fat when relief came. "'On my way back to my hole I passed one where Dr. Moorsley lay wounded, moaning piteously. "'I put a plum in his mouth, and I saw it between his teeth next morning. "'He died on the night of the 19th. "'All our wounded were very cheerful, and to look at Colonel Forsythe and talk to him "'as he lay there helpless, no outsider would have suspected that he was crippled. "'We used to gather round him in his pit and hold conversation, "'not like men in a desperate situation, but like neighbors talking over a common cause.' Colonel Forsyth was the right man in command of such a heterogeneous company. Like the least among us, he attended to his own horse when in camp, and many times I saw him gather buffalo chips to supply the mess fuel. While he was our commander in practice, he was our friend, and as such we respected him, followed him, and obeyed him. On about the fifth day, as the Indians began leaving us, we began to walk about and look around. About fifteen or twenty feet from my pit, I noticed a few of our men calling to the rest of us. I ran to the place, and there, against the edge of the island, I saw three dead Indians. Their friends evidently could not reach them to carry them off, which explained to us the persistent fighting in this direction. When I got there, the Indians were being stripped of their equipments, scalps, etc. One of them was shot in the head, and his hair was clotted with blood. I took hold of one of his braids and applied my knife to the skin above the ear to secure the scalp, but my hand coming in contact with the blood, I dropped the hair in disgust. "'Old Jim Lane saw my hesitation, and taking up the braid said to me, "'My boy, does it make you sick?' "'Then, inserting the point of the knife under the skin, "'he cut around, took up the other braid, and jerked the scalp from the head. "'I'd been about three years in that country, and four years in America, "'and life on the plains under such hardships as I had undergone hardens the sensibility. "'Yet I was not quite ripe for such a cutting affray, even with a dead Indian.' After this we were not molested, but devoted our time to looking around for something to eat besides the rotten horse and mule meat, which we boiled several times in water and powder, not to get it soft, but to boil out the stench as much as possible. We found some cactus fruit, and killed a coyote, of which the brains and a rib were my portion. Aside from this, we had nothing but horse and mule during the siege, which soon told on our bowels, but in spite of all this, I do not remember a despondent man in our crowd." One morning, being the ninth since we were attacked, I was lying outside of my pit, having done some guard duty during the night. I was half-dozing and dreaming of home and a good meal. I felt so homesick and so hungry when I heard someone call attention to something moving on the hill. I was all attention, at once. Soon I heard again, "'I think that's Dr. Fitzgerald's greyhound. Whoever it might be, we would welcome.' We would even have been pleased to have the Indian attack on us again, in hopes of killing one of their horses for fresh meat. But it was soon evident that help was coming, and when I finally realized this fact, enfeebled as I was, I jumped up and joined in a lunatic's dance that was in progress all around us. Those on the hill must have seen us, for there was a rush of horsemen down the hill toward us, followed by one or two ambulance wagons. They were as eager to reach us as we were to greet them. "'and as I ran uphill I noticed a soldier on a white horse coming full tilt. "'The momentum carried him past me, "'but in passing I grabbed his saddlebag and was taken off my feet, "'but it would have taken more than one horse to drag me from my hold. "'I suspected some eatables in there, "'and as soon as he could stop, without dismounting, "'he assisted me to open that bag. "'With both hands I dived in, "'and with each hand I clutched some hard tack, "'but only one hand could reach my mouth. "'My other was in the grip of one of our men, "'who ravenously snatched the tacks.' "'We ate, cried, laughed, and ate, all in a breath. "'As soon as possible, we put our dead in the ground. "'Those that died at one end of the island were cared for by those in that vicinity "'and others in their vicinity, "'so that one part of the island was not aware of the location of the corpses of the other part. "'At least I did not know where the bodies lay of those killed on the eastern end of the island. "'So one time, as I walked around among the pits, I noticed something red and round sticking out of the sand, like a half-berry red berry. I kicked it, but by so doing it was not dislodged. I kicked again, but to no result. I then looked closer and discovered that it was the nose of a dead man. I called others to my assistance, and we fixed matters so that no desecration was possible again. Our mortally wounded were made as comfortable as possible before they died. "'I assisted at such ministrations given to Lieutenant Beecher. "'We removed his boots, coat, etc., "'and, of course, these things were not replaced on the body "'after he was dead, but lay around unnoticed. "'My shoes were quite badly worn, "'especially after being used for digging in the sand. "'So when relief came and we were preparing to leave the island, "'I put on his shoes, which were just about my size, "'and wore them even after I got back to New York City, "'leaving my old shoes in their stead on the island.' At one of our sittings around Colonel Forsythe in his pit, the incident of killing the coyote was discussed, and plans were suggested for the killing of more of them. Along with others, I also suggested a scheme, but it was ridiculed, and I soon retired to my pit, which was near enough to the colonel's so that I could hear what was said there. One of the men remaining was saying uncomplimentary things about me, when the colonel silenced him, telling him that I was but a boy unused to such things, and that, under the circumstances, "'I was doing better than some of the older men. "'Colonel Forsythe is unconscious of the fact "'that I am very grateful to him for his kindness "'to that strange boy among those strangers, "'and that I still hope some day "'that I may have the opportunity to show my appreciation. "'Jack Stilwell and I were the only boys in the company "'and naturally gravitated toward each other. "'We were friends as soon as we met "'and chums before we knew each other's names. "'When the colonel asked for volunteers "'to go to Fort Wallace for help, "'Jack was among the first to announce himself. "'I wanted to go with him, "'but the colonel gave no heed to my request. "'Even Jack discouraged me, "'for he knew I was too inexperienced. "'After Colonel Carpenter came to our relief, "'Jack was not with him, "'which made me and the others feel very uneasy. "'The day after Colonel Carpenter's arrival, "'we saw the mounted sentinel "'that had been posted by Colonel Carpenter "'on a high eminence in the hills "'about three miles from the island, "'signaling that a body of men was approaching, "'which created a flutter of excitement.' but there was a strong sensation of security mingled with a sense of dependence upon our black rescuers permeating our emaciated party, after being cooped up, so to say, for so long a period in dread and suspense. At least that was my sensation. I remember watching that vedette, horse and rider turning around and around, being the only moving object in that dim distance, indicating to the anxious watchers that either friend or foe was in the vicinity. As he showed no inclination to leave his post, It was soon evident that he had no fear of the approaching column, and that friends were coming. Not long after, a few horsemen were seen coming round the bend of the riverbed, and among them was my friend, Jack Stilwell. Nearly all of us ran to meet the party. Soon Jack jumped from his horse, and then his joy to see so many of us alive again, he permitted his tears free flow down his good, honest cheeks. I kept up correspondence with him all these years past. Last year, he died. He was a big-hearted, jovial fellow, brave to a fault. Author's Note 38. Jack Stilwell studied law and ultimately became a judge in Texas. He was a friend of Generals Miles and Custer, also of Wild Bill Hickok, Texas Jack Omahundro, and other famous figures on the frontier. And when he died a couple of years ago, he was the subject of glowing tributes from high and low alike. Thank you for joining us for Chapter 7 of Indian Fights and Fighters by C.T. Brady. If you're enjoying our show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We would appreciate that very much. At Apple, just search 1001 Stories from the Old West and send us a review. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll return in two weeks with another story from the Old West. Hope you enjoyed it.